Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights outtake episode from Hobby Hotline last Saturday on with John Newman and Danny Black. We were on for an hour. This is about 12 minutes of it that I thought was worth editing and uh, presenting to you because the episode was live. There were lots of comments and the episode, it's been posted. I strongly encourage you to just participate in Hobby Hotline as it comes out, or you can catch it later as it's posted to where you get your podcast, where whatever your service is. I'm on Podbean, but uh, I think they're on Spreaker now. There's several uh, good ones. Uh, we talked about a bunch of things. Listen to the whole episode if you want to, but this is 12 minutes that I thought fit in with uh, some of the things I'm trying to do. So thanks, Danny and John. Thanks, callers, commenters. And thanks, sponsors, Top Spinini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hunter the Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, and ComC.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Rating, Beckett Authentication. Here it is, and thanks again, everybody. Be back again in a couple of days with another episode, but enjoy this one. Jefferson Burdick, the hobby Mount Rushmore, it starts with him. But John, if you were on a cemetery tour, what's the second grave you're going to go do of somebody in the hobby that has been an amazing contributor that's predeceased us. Cyberger. Cyberger would be up there. But Cyberger hasn't been gone that long. Burdick was the guy the older guys looked up to when I was coming into it. The Frank Nagy's of the world who were years older than me. That's the guy they thought really brought it together so that we could have some organization to our collecting. And almost everything I did was using that as a foundation and I was just doing sports and I had my hands full the non-sports stuff all the Americana and paper ephemera stuff that he did he was prolific it was his life work and he died doing it now at least his grave is properly cleaned and honored John so thank you so much for doing that two more things guys one is I'm thought of as a price guide guy from back in the day but really a catalog or two and Jefferson Burdick is thought of as a cataloger guy, preeminent in that. But also, he did price guide. Now, do you think that's very simplistic in the American card catalog? Cards were a nickel or a penny or a dime or a quarter. But that really is what they went for. And so when John is talking about cleaning up the grave and the headstone being a, a problematic, uh, Jefferson Burdick's coll- his lifetime collection, accumulation of all these cards – would be worth millions and millions today. But if he had sold it back at that time, it would have been worth thousands and maybe not even tens of thousands, yeah. even the Wagner and stuff like that. It, he, I don't know that he could have gotten $10,000 for his collection when he died. He did do pricey, not in the same way you did, uh, Dr. Jim, years mm-hmm. later, but he did. And he was rumored to he would low value some things because he didn't like the the selling or the value put on the cards he was old school where he he really thought we should just collect them and not worry uh, about value and so he took criticism uh, from some that hey that should have been valued more uh, in your catalog well, people people are always going to criticize but i've never <laughs> heard anybody say that he was self-dealing the same dilemma. I had to not be a dealer and not even really that much of a collector if you're doing these kind of activities. And he was still a collector, but nobody said he devalued something so he could acquire it or he overvalued something so that he could get the best of a trade. So like I said, he was a mensch too, somebody that really selflessly helped build this industry. 
because the American card I, catalog that he did, that wasn't a moneymaker. He would have been an amazing guy, even if he'd never uh, done the thing at the Met. But one of the unsung heroes in the story would be the person that was on the other end of the phone or that he met with and said, I've got this huge collection of cards, baseball cards, and, other stuff, and I'd like to put them in your Metropolitan Museum of Art, along with the Rembrandts and all these other fantastic old masters. And the person on the other end of the line at the Met didn't say, you're nuts. What are you talking about? No one would be interested in that. So somebody had to have the vision that this was truly Americana and that this guy, of all the people at that time, was willing to do that. He basically donated his collection, which was preeminent. And so somebody had the foresight to say, yes, we want your collection here. Whoever handed it off then didn't take it seriously enough to protect it, but at least they welcomed it and allowed him to mount it and make it displayable. The Met, which is an awesome museum anyway, but it's like the Hall of Fame. There's so much stuff in the basement of the Met and of the Hall of Fame that they can't display everything. Despite all the rumors that you can never have the National in the same city two years in a row, Chicago will be hosting for two years in a row. The vote went down to Atlantic City, Atlanta, and Chicago, was the winner. The leaders of the National said it was the most votes they've ever received from the most dealers. The bylaws were that you couldn't even have it in a contiguous state. That's why you jump over Indiana to get to Ohio with Cleveland. So either the bylaws were waived or with the new regime, they got a waiver. And then the second thing is the method of voting was changed this year. And that had to be approved as well, that the voting was not by mail, but it, you could vote right there when you were there. And so that's why they had more people voting, because it was easier to vote. It's a democratic vote of the sure. voters eligible to vote. Sure, and sure. The voting is by dealers. But I hear a lot of comments by collectors saying it'd be really interesting if we had it in a different place. But the dealers are not looking to go someplace interesting. They're looking <laughs> for a sure thing. And so when you say, hey, Atlanta wasn't that good last time, but it, it might be a lot better this time. Might be is not what the dealers are going to vote for. They know exactly what they're going to get in Chicago. They also know exactly what they're going to get in Atlantic City. And economically, other than the hassle factor and the safety factor, Atlantic City is a great building. Yeah. Not a great city, got some problems, but economically, it would be strong. I was not surprised that Chicago was first. It is the surest of sure things. Atlantic City also would be viable. And Atlanta's a maybe. And any other city other than Chicago is going to be measured up against a sure thing where this past year, I think most dealers did record sales. And so do you want to try Denver? Do you want to even try Dallas? Do you want to even try anything? St. Louis, Detroit, any cities that have had nationals before or are considering it, Chicago is the surest of sure things. I, it makes perfect sense, even though I'd love to see it come back to Baltimore. It's not, this is not a tourist event. It's not a family vacation event, although it can be. But that's not what the voters are saying. Hey, it'd be nice. Let's have it at Disney World. <laughs> or Vegas. Well, put Orlando or Vegas. on the list. I'm just saying. Making cars are very. But it's not a sure thing for our industry. Go to San Diego, where the Comic Con is. Nope, they're not going to go. They're going to go where 
there is such a base of collectors and such a track record of strong shows and strong nationals that Chicago, if they really didn't have this restriction, then it, it really could be in Chicago every year because voters could keep voting for it. So we'll how, see. Long ago, how long ago were the bylaws put together? Long, long time ago. Bruce Painter was an attorney. He's passed away. He was a, another hobby icon that selflessly served the industry. But I mean, he wasn't doing an edict. He prepared them, and they were voted on and accepted. And he did a great job. And he was from Chicago. It would have been to his interest. So they made it so you couldn't do two years in a row. They wanted to move it to a different place. It's commuting distance. You've got to be able to drive. And to drive from the East Coast to the West Coast is probably not going to happen for dealers. Collectors are going to jump on a plane, um, but they're not going to try something new for the sake of trying something new. They're going to look for a sure thing. Uh, Chicago has it all. They have lots of hotel rooms within walking distance, lots of great restaurants within walking distance, and they've got an easy in and out for dealers, which is also a big deal. And the air conditioning will get fixed. They've got two years to get ready. I was a full-time expert witness for six years. I was in court more than most attorneys. And any lawsuit is a bad lawsuit. It means people couldn't resolve their differences. And with the first shot off the bow being cease and desist by virtue of here's a lawsuit, I'm shocked that the Panini haters out there are so down on Panini that they're having no sympathy for the fact that this is a, a hobby company that's done a lot of good things, uh, and they're being pummeled now. And as John said, there seems to be a fanatic's benefit to each of these. I'm not saying it's an orchestrated thing, but there, there do seem to be a lot of uh, blows coming toward Panini. And I haven't heard a lot of sympathy from collectors. Hey, give them a break. It's really tough to run a company, number one, when you've lost a lot of your key people this year, and number two, when you've been hit with multiple lawsuits including one that you settled for $25 million, which I, I did talk to one of the guys, and I understand that a little bit better, but that's still pretty mind-boggling. They grew the industry, speaking of basketball, they probably grew basketball 10x during the, the last few years. That's what Fanatics aspires to do. Panini actually did it, but they're considered to be incompetent in the lawsuit, even though they did a 10x. And they did it with these same employees, that fanatics hired away, <laughs> who are now not incompetent because they're with them. Panini here is considered an underdog when internationally they're more than a billion-dollar company, and they're be just being pummeled. I, I just hope cooler heads will prevail. They're already on a borrowed time and lame ducks, but when I look at some of the things that WWE said, that they didn't do this, didn't do that, in every contract like that, there's cure provisions that you give them a warning, and if you don't do it, and I'm not seeing any of that. And hey, pay up your royalties, but you can't distribute even when you have. That's posturing. But how do you settle this? Because yeah, one, they want them okay, out, and they want them out immediately. All these things are bad for our industry because they affect the momentum that we have going. Let them do their stuff. When their contract runs out, it runs out. I'm expressly not willing to say that it's an orchestrated move because that would be legally liable, I think. 
Some conspiracies are symphonic, where everybody's playing off the same music and harmoniously working toward making beautiful music together. But most conspiracies are like jazz, where you follow the lead, somebody does something, then you do something, you join in. But there's no music that you're reading. You're just playing along. And that's what I think is happening here. They didn't get together and say, hey, let's run them out of the industry. They're shooting arrows. Panini was a giant. They, they weren't a small company. They're bigger than Upper Deck. So they're just getting wounded with these. And, and, and they're piling on. That just doesn't seem fair to me. 18 employees resigned on the same day with no notice. That seems orchestrated to me. Um, it was not orchestrated in the sense that at that point, on that same day, all those employees were in the same place. And they had a chance to have meetings with fanatics and to hear their presentation one by one. The orchestrated would be, we're not taking any of you unless all of you come. This was at an industry event, and they said, we have job, jobs opening. If you, you, you would be a, a preferred candidate because you've already been doing this exact job. Yeah, so I, I, I'm not willing to, do, to, do, to go with orchestrated. It's trying to win at business.